mean, one shouldn't smoke, but having said that, I like a good cigar, but most of the ones that I've had have not been made out of posters. <laughs> Rolling up a full, like, dorm room poster, <laughs> letting it on fire, and inhaling the fumes. Is... Smoking a Scarface poster? Right. <laughs> one should not ingest anything related with the movie Scarface other than watching the movie. Right. Which right? one should do, because that is Which one should do, movie. absolutely. But yeah. one should not... All the other forms of ingesting <laughs> that involve that surround Scarface... Do not do any... I do not recommend. Welcome to the Design Games Podcast. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. So Nathan, what are we talking about on the show this week? We are talking some more about how to make decisions about where the GM basket of authorities and responsibilities and such forth lie in your game. As a, as a specific nuts and bolts thing, this is one of the tricks. The examples that I do in Dark is that to give a, 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 an escape hatch to the GM when I can, which is to say that the GM can just make decisions as the NPCs, but the GM will often have information that the NPCs doesn't have, right. don't have. Mm-hmm. So I have as many systems as possible run on just a, a check of the dice where you go, okay, I know this, the NPC knows that, I need an answer fast, and I don't want to reason out where the information breaks down. Mm-hmm. So there's a little like almost AI system for the NPCs, which is, Bases on the core interactions with the player characters, and you can roll a die, and that tells the GM essentially which half of a binary decision the NPC makes, because a binary decision contains multitudes, mm-hmm. right? But we know the NPC is going to fight or flight. The NPC is going to go for help or just get themselves out of there. Mm-hmm. These kind of things, right? And you can kind of backfill in later if you need to. Like, why did they make that decision? Or, or yeah, or or to give you as much information it, to backfill in the moment, right? So that you can say, okay, well, the NPC has reached this conclusion, mm-hmm. and I I might think that's a Terrible idea. You're outnumbered. Don't fight all these guys. Mm-hmm. But the NPCs reach that, reach that decision. So now all I have to portray is the fact they did and what that looks like. Right. And how like desperate it is or how whatever. Because or I feel like or... it is a desperate decision exactly. in this moment. So that it is more yeah. like so much in that game. It is more about portrayal than it is about reaching a decision mm-hmm. based on... And I, I do that because the dice are always fair. Mm-hmm. They're not always logical. <laughs> but... People aren't always logical. So one of the part of it is the goal is making sure those dice get rolled when the people are under stress. Well, that's one of those moments, like we've talked about before, where yeah. where, where the system takes the responsibility. Right. And and the, the players don't have that feeling of like, oh, I made a bad decision or I made the... An unfair decision. Yeah, or, or a weird or decision a, or whatever. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. that's what the dice say. We're just going forward with it. And that's one way that you can take some of those some of that authority out of a singular GM's hands and into your game's hands is you exactly. can create mechanical moments for certain decision points uh where you maybe you want you don't want a person at the table to have the 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 weight or the i don't know the social whatever social weirdness might come up about a certain decision right to have to explain to have to defend something that a decision they might make yeah intuitively or emotionally yeah and and when you get right down to it's like who cares we just need to make a decision to move on right right because the the you know the big secret is no matter what we come up with, it's we're, it's going to be good. Right? right. Like, no matter what decision is made, play is going to continue and take that decision into account and continue building on it and incorporating it into the next right. phase of play. And whatever so, it is, it's going to be made up. And yeah, and it's all <laughs> made up anyway. Up, yeah. So if it is immaterial in that sense, then you can put it in the system's hands and just see how that goes. So yeah, we're going to talk about actual practices and ways that that GM gets split up and ways that it gets performed and enacted and so forth. Yeah. That's what I would like to talk about. This is one of those kind of weird ones where it's difficult 
to be very specific about it because so much depends on the rest of the game, the goals right. of the game, the the other frameworks that you've built up, the you know the theme and premise and all that stuff. So that said, how I came to this was I kind of came up with a bunch of questions that I ask myself, and I think are questions that you should ask yourself when you're thinking about how do how do I apportion authority and responsibility? Mm-hmm. Why do I? Why does it matter? What are the important things to keep in mind when you're making those decisions? And not that they can't all be turned simultaneously, but we have questions of dials of inevitability and, and momentum and trajectory, dials mm-hmm. of so what we what where we're going or what we're doing along the way. And a lot of games are picking their battles right. in order yeah. to to do those effectively. Right. And I don't know short of a gigantic book, how you could try to fight all battles simultaneously. <laughs> right, yeah. I think clearly it's, uh, like, like all things with design, you you pick what you're prioritizing. And yeah. as you say, you know, pick, pick the battles that are worth fighting for your goals, which may bring us to some of these some of these questions. That it, So I, I wrote this list just now. So these aren't like some checklist that I go to or something like that. Sure. It was more in terms of approaching this idea what are some questions that maybe I should be asking myself and maybe you do it, whether formally or informally. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bang through this list real quick and then maybe we'll go back to anything that speaks to you. But so if I'm answering the question, why do I need a GM? What does a GM do? How do I split up the GM thing? Like that's the meta, what we're talking about. So specific questions I want to ask myself are things like, what needs to be created fictionally? Like what's the actual content that enters the game? Where does the, 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 for lack of a better term, the plot come from? Or story, narrative, whatever. But where does the go come from? Where's the... To, What's to, the propellant? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Propellant is a good is a good term. Uh, where's the propellant for play come from? What makes things interesting? Uh, and not just, let's just make up some stuff and be so happy we made up some stuff. What what makes things, what th- keeps things compelling? What, what makes it... um. Not just, I have these interests and I'm going to get them. Right. You know, what creates challenges, that kind of thing. I definitely stick a flag in that one because I'm going to question. So we'll come back to that. that. Yeah. Which of the players at the table, inclusive of everyone, which personal visions do you prioritize and why and when? And I think this actually gets back to something I said in the last episode, which is like one of the benefits of strong GM led play is that vision, that, you know, celebrating a singular vision and seeing where it goes what about making things interesting and so specifically this is where antagonism is in my head when i think about where does antagonism come from yeah antagonism makes things interesting antagonism makes makes it a a a a compelling you know makes the ending opaque right that's kind of a weird way to say it but i guess even in a game where it has a set structure it's like everyone dies at the end or whatever right? right but that's still i still want that to be opaque i don't want to Start play and be like, okay, I know exactly how the next three hours are going to go. Right. And when we get to the end of this three hours, all of these checkboxes will have been checked and we'll, we will have finished the operation that we engaged in at the beginning. You know, uh, David Mamet has a term for that. Um, for all that David Mamet has, um, is very specific, I think, to some of the modes that he writes about. Um, and I've, I've drawn from, from his writing for, for metaphors, I think, uh, in ways that I think may be spindling and mutilating what he's saying. Mm-hmm. But in this case, there's a great metric that he uses, which is that the end of a play, the end of a movie, the end of a story should be surprising and inevitable. Right. Yeah. And it's that weird combination, right? Yeah. Which is that, like you always say, of course that's how it, that's how it has to end. Right. Without knowing two hours in advance how it, how it is going to end. Right. Yeah. Being, 
having that sense of satisfaction yeah. of like, yes, that, that was a fulfilling moment. So yeah, so uh, the antagonism and also um, what makes it non-trivial or what makes it non-obvious. Those are all kind of wrapped up in this idea of what makes it interesting. Does the GM make it interesting? Does the game make it interesting? Like in Quiet Year, the cards make it interesting. Right? Uh, th- so this is where the interesting is such a... Is a nonsense word. <laughs> well, it, it's such a... Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a smoky, it's a placeholder word. Yeah, it's a placeholder word. So. Yeah, so uh, what I, I, I would love to be able to... Knowing that... that I think I mean I think it's perfectly active at this stage, right? Because the notion is to me, I would put it in brackets. Right. In this what, game. And then what am I replacing interesting with game right. by game? What, Compelling what is, or unavoidable or un yeah. undeniable or yeah, what like, is, whatever it is. That what does interesting it, mean in your game? Yeah. What is an interesting twist? What is what is the content that makes a non trivial, non obvious path? In a way, right? It's how do we how does it help us know that something is both is either or both surprising and inevitable, which is to say hmm. um, or apt. Mm-hmm. Right, it's surprising or after satisfyingly apt or whatever it is. But it's, so, for example, something that is obvious and couldn't be stopped is not interesting. Mm-hmm. It might be interesting in the premise. It might be interesting on the back cover of the book, right? Where you go, oh, this is a game where everybody dies. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. But once we start playing, it will no longer be interesting because it is already established. Right. So there's something else that's in the is that the bracketed content. Right. That creates the context for mm-hmm. everybody, the manner in which the characters vanish one by one. Right. Or the fact that a character that can go MIA mm-hmm. instead of KIA, and it's still interesting. Mm-hmm. Right? That's still like, oh, oh, that's allowed. Mm-hmm. Yes, we will allow it, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so, right, it's, it's, that's mm-hmm. the parameters that say, because ordinarily, like, in D&D, the characters kill monsters and get their stuff. That is interesting in the premise of the game, but it's not actually that interesting in play, it's how it happens, or if it fails, or whatever. That makes and sometimes it it's surprising. what the stuff is, right? Exactly, right? exactly. Uh, or what the monsters are. Like that can be the compelling part of D anD. d Is like, right. oh, look at all these. Like, uh, I'm playing in a, a, a Lamentations of the Flame Princess game right now. Cool. And a lot of the, what's interesting in that game is like, what creepy, horrible, terrible thing <laughs> is going to be revealed to us next? Right. You know that that's where a lot of the momentum comes from, and um, and in that game, in that structure of the you know an osr old school dnd structure yeah that's a strong vision being presented to us as players that that game respects right you know from from the gm or from the scenario in this case it's kind of a blend like there is a scenario and then the gm is also adding her own right you know stuff to it that's yeah. one of the ways that I, what gets me is the interaction between these questions is so fascinating to me mm-hmm. In the Venn diagram of the answers to these questions, the questions are little translucent floaty bits set on water and they drift around <laughs> and each game freeze frames them in mm-hmm. different ways, right? So that like what makes it interesting is sometimes that, that individual authorial vision, right? which might actually be split over a bunch of people so isn't an individual or isn't authorial or whatever, right? right? But it's still... And that's where yeah. we get back to like, how do you choose? How do you choose how to split up those GM responsibilities? Do you want to prioritize an individual vision? Like this is like um, the clay that woke. Is, yeah. is this great example of uh, where Paul said, look, we, the people love these, whether, whether in, in so playing or in remembering, love these long campaign mm-hmm. fantasy games. And then, and, you know, here's this crazy fantasy world where you play minotaurs and I have all these, you know, off the wall ideas about it. And when you run that game, like the first part of play for the GM is like, come up with a bunch of stuff that you want to see. Because the players have no authority, honestly. Like, you start off, you don't have a name, you don't have, like, you have, all of your stuff is predetermined, you select what kind of Minotaur you are, that's it. 
And everything comes from the GM at the very beginning of the game. And it's very explicit in that game of like, you need to pick stuff that you care about because that's what's going to make this game memorable. Here's a crazy setting that you, mm-hmm. that you put imbue your vision into. And then you need to have a strong voice or else it's just going to meander. And that's a really interesting, I think, inversion of what a lot of self-published stuff has prioritized, which is like consensus, you know, working with each other, right. yes and, all that kind of stuff, collaboration, yeah. where that game, it doesn't say you can't do that. Like you still do those as like individual techniques at certain times. But in terms of like where the buck stops, it stops with the GM in that game about almost everything until the Minotaurs gain some experience and the players gain experience in the world and start being able to affect it in stronger ways. Well, that's part of why when I look at these four questions, I, uh, thinking about how one answers another, mm-hmm. not necessarily in any order, right? But is that where does the vision come from helps determine what makes something interesting or answering what's interesting mm-hmm. helps determine who's who gets to talk when. Yeah. And uh, uh, like plot can come from antagonism. Mm-hmm. In fact, to me, t- technically, it's the difference between that's what plot is. Sure, yeah, right. But that, that's but that's that's not a prescription. That's mm-hmm. more my muscle memory. Yeah, is that plot comes from two characters wanting to, wanting either the same thing in different mm-hmm. ways or different things at the same time. But like propellant in the like that's a great right. word. You know, you can have a, a instigating force right. that makes you want to see what happens. Right. And like and and in some games, having a strong antagonist could actually block that, right? Like if you, right, if it's yeah, if it's too strong, the characters if it's give too up. Too strong, and you give up. <laughs> yeah, and then then what do you do? One of the great questions for that, by the way, which uh, I'm stealing from people like John Rogers, the writer and and game designer John mm-hmm. Rogers. Uh, why now? Um, or also uh, he and I, why are you telling me this? Mm-hmm. Right? There's a difference between this character needs a glass of water and this character owns all the water. There's a plot in there. But why is this story happening now? Why didn't it happen yesterday? Hmm. Why can't we wait till tomorrow? Which is one thing, right? Why does he need the water now? Or why is it happening today? Hmm. Or why are you telling me this? Right? Which is, yeah, everybody needs water. And he's going to get it because what he did is he gave the guy $2 and got a bottle of water. That's how that works. Right? So why are you telling me this? Well, and Fiasco does this really well where answering those questions is kind of embedded in the lists and, and the relationships of the characters. Which again is is not a singular GM or even a distributed GM deciding here's here's why now it mm-hmm. actually lives the game tells you here's what's happening here's why it's happening now you know here's the 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 fragile relationships. You know, the interesting is uh, I have to disagree a little bit, which is that I think the game makes that easy to answer, but it the sure play, okay yeah, right? yeah. because I've seen tables where everybody's like wants to be timid sure and if it okay. wasn't for a facilitator saying. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because part of the notion, of the, the, and this is actually goes to part of the pacing, uh, we had talked about this before, is that it's possible for the first couple of scenes in Fiasco to go real, real slow as people are saying, you know, if they're not fully yet first, yeah, and, they're, yeah. and they're like, well, I don't want to go, no, no, what's the matter? You, you like, know, I don't want to overstep my bounds. Or, or right? I don't want to, we should rob the bank in the third act, because that's the big deal. Go, no, just rob it now. Go nuts. We'll do flashbacks, whatever. Go rob the bank. Mm-hmm. Go nuts. Now, you have an idea. It's exciting. So start there. Mm-hmm. And we can do the fallout, or we can flash back to the beginning of it, right? That because the game doesn't demand its linear time to be right in order, yeah, and it still plays just fine. Uh, whereas that's not true for every game, right? And so part of the notion of why now or what is the propellant, and you can see this sometimes actually, and I see this in even things like D and D, right? Whereas or Dungeon World, less of Dungeon World because of its uh, experience mechanic, but where people are like, and it can be mine to good effect, but where adventurers say, let's not go into the big scary keep, we're only first level, right? Right, so the propellant has to be enough to convince them to go into the big scary castle, mm-hmm. even though they're only first level, and that is relegated to the adventure and the GM very often in D anD D, as opposed to like a notion that that 
No, the only way to get XP is to do that. In a one-shot, it works, but if you give a campaign and you give them off-level stuff, mm-hmm. D&D is structured to send players towards the things they can accomplish so they can accomplish the next thing they can accomplish. Right. Whereas other games can structure it so that, well, like, no, go go not, go to the hard thing, and if mm-hmm. you survive but you screw up a bunch, you'll gain XP so that you can do it even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Each of these can be answered, like, one person can do this, multiple people can do this, everybody can do this or split among those continuums Mm -hmm. right and then to make a decision about that i guess is when you start taking them in conversation with each other right i think one thing one good starting point i think a natural starting point is like is the what needs to be created what fictional content needs to be generated in order for this game to paint the beautiful picture of the world or create the harrowing situation or right. whatever. Um, can, can I say I think it's very revealing and very apt for the way that you design that you use the word created instead of established, for example? Mm, sure. Because I think, I mean, created is absolutely apt at the design stage, right? But part of that in D&D, like, so what is a dwarf? That mm-hmm. has been created. You just need to establish it in your campaign setting, mm-hmm. right? In D&D, a dwarf is this, an elf yeah. is that. But you can have games like Annalise mm-hmm. or like the world in Atlas Reckoning or like the, the relationships in Fiasco where you say giant robots exist, bank heists exist, whatever these things are in your game. Mm-hmm. Everything around it has to be created for your game or has to be established if it's already created. So if you mm-hmm. buy a setting book, you're establishing we are in this tavern, in this town, in this barony, in this kingdom. Mm-hmm. Right. It all was pre-written, but we're establishing. Right. Time of year, time of day, all mm-hmm. this stuff. Um, and that, that, so that dial is still, yeah, yeah something that, that, that the, the designer and the GM can work. Mm-hmm. Like as a designer, you, you might create enough stuff so the GM can set at any time of year. Or in Mountain Witch, you might say, no, 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 it's this season, this mountain, this time of day, yeah. when you start. I'll set all these dials for you and then you can go and do lots of cool stuff. Well, even in D&D though, right? Like, like the adventure needs to be created. Right. Or the characters is really the big And thing. the characters yeah. need to be created. So those are two, so I guess, yeah, so fictionally is one way to answer that. Then also, like, functionally, like, for this game to work. Right. Right? What needs to be created? The adventure. Who creates the adventure? The GM. But, is where D- but like, where, you know, D&D answers these questions. Or the module design. Right, that's what I was going to say. Or it's, whatever. It's, it's, it's yeah. A designer may also may still be the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. But D&D historically is also about the fact that, who picks, that you can go back and forth. Who yeah. picks? Who, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Who picks the adventure? I mean, in some cases, you know, I'm sure as a player who's like, hey... I've heard so much about, you know, amongst the giants or whatever. Right. Will you run it for us? That happens, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but the way that's kind of split up is like, who creates who creates the world, right? The GM. Right. Who creates the characters, the players. Right. And I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm harping on this one because I think there's a, there's a great, that proves your point. Example of the fact that the GM can establish that the Tome of Horrors exists in, the Tomb of Horrors exists in my campaign Sure, setting, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the players can decide when they go there. Whether they go there or not. Right, so there's yeah. all kinds of ways to subtly change that mm-hmm. order, even though, yeah, it all has to be created. Mm-hmm. And how it gets deployed and established and selected, yeah, it's really But then I think a sub point under that that's worth thinking about is who... Once it enters the world, whether mm-hmm. it's a functional or a fictional thing, mm-hmm. um, once it enters, who maintains the authority? Who keeps it? And this kind of gets back to the game you've been talking about where you're structuring it so that one person doesn't necessarily keep authority over the monster from the burning the burning desert. Mm-hmm. You know, they can give it up to a different GM or whatever, depending on what's going on in the game, which is really interesting. Think of the traditional handoff where a player writes their character history and their character's parents are in it. Mm-hmm. And once that is established mm-hmm. a certain amount of that authority over those two npcs goes to the gm yeah so it goes to the dm uh, where, where the player says oh yeah my parents are still alive the dm says for now right. or whatever right <laughs> and that the player the, you know unless even there may be a house 
system for this, but the D&D has no mechanism mm -hmm. by which the player can, other than fighting monsters, getting their time and fighting monsters, or making skill checks to, you know, whatever, but there's no role to keep your parents alive despite the GM's wishes right. me mechanism in D&D. There are games in which that might be the case, that by writing them into your character history, we share authority well, over them or contest um, them or whatever. Like in, in Swords Without Master, when you create your character, you write down some things that are, like, part of them. I forget what they're... There's a, yeah. there's a cool name for them, because there's a cool name for everything. But, like, my snake-headed my, my snake priestess, um, you know, one of her named things is the... I don't know, the saber-toothed mongoose that she's tamed. Nice. You know, yeah. and uh, and rides as her mount or whatever. So since I named it, uh, the overplayer, the GM, can't take it away from me. Right. Like, rule the game. You can't, you can't kill it. I can kill it, or I can allow it to be, I can give it up, essentially. Right. But um, if I put, if I write it down on my sheet as one of my things, you can't take, like, my weapon or uh, my lover like right. if I say I have a lover, overplayer can do whatever they want. If I write it write down the the name of the lover, then they can't be taken away from me. Right. Unless I I choose. And then through play you can actually you can you can name thing like if you play long for more than a session, if I remember right, you can name things and, and unname things basically. You can kind of collect things into your character so that they can't be taken away, but someone else could have introduced them. You could have introduced the Sabretooth Mongoose and I'm like, Oh, that's the best like I'm gonna have a scene where you know right. tell me how I tamed Mongoose or whatever. Right, right. right. And now I'm writing that down on my sheet because that's the most badass mount ever for my snake snake priestess. And then what's interesting to me is, and this always got me, and not, it, I noted it, but I didn't have almost, I had almost no emotional reaction to it, which is odd for me, <laughs> but was that it's odd that that is still considered your character as opposed to the player's portfolio of stuff. You know what I mean? Sure, like, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Because that in itself is kind of a holdover from just precursor terminology. Mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a way, it's the, you know, it's all the player, including the character, it's all the player's stuff. Mm -hmm. And the you know, it's like, you know, Conan is Robert E. Howard's character. And so is whatever, whoever, Conan's sword and Conan's sidekick and stuff. Those, those belong to Robert E. Howard. Right. Not to Conan. Right. <laughs> but. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Just the terminology and the conception of it is yeah. still like. I'm part of it is because the, all the terms in, you know, I feel like in Swords of that Master are not only very carefully selected, but are doing, in some cases, double and triple task. Yeah. In that. Because it's keeping you focused on the character as opposed to making a character feel like a list of equipment. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which yeah, it really doesn't feel like. Because that game doesn't yeah. really want you, that game really wants you to be invested in the character. Yeah. And to make decisions as the character. Right. Yeah. And not necessarily, even though you have a lot of power to do this, I think this is one of the powers of the game, you have a lot of authorial power over the world and over other people's, the context that other people's characters are in. Right. Depending on what scene you're playing and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But you still have a very one-to-one -one relationship with your character yeah. and advocating for their success. Even though as a player, you have a lot of what would be considered, you know, GM kind of authorial framing power. Yeah. And yeah, that's a great example. Uh, I, yeah, I hadn't thought about it in this context, but that, you're right. That, that That's a great example of its presentation and its focus being just a little bit different in a very fertile way, mm -hmm. which is that, Players, for me, it's a matter of that I feel very comfortable as a player engaging with the world and I don't feel like timid about protecting my character from what is often a very, it can be a giant, frightening and grandiose and dangerous world. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm eager to engage with it because I know that I as a player have a certain amount of agency. Right. But that I am positioned behind my character. Right, that, I, that I'm pushing the character forward and the character is delighted to go. Like, right. They're like, yes, let's go do stuff. <laughs> yeah. In a way that I might not if I was fully in the character, but it doesn't draw attention to the way that I have player agency so much it keeps me in the character 
mm-hmm. without making me feel like, oh, if I die, I can't play for two hours or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. D&D where I think of the, the lowest level D&D characters where I'm fully my, my new character and I've created a backstory, but I'm afraid to do anything because mm-hmm. I only have two hit points. Well, right. Like in, yeah. like in Lamentations, a lot of our, a lot of our in character dynamic yeah. is around deciding whether we should do a thing or not because right. we all know we're fragile. Right. Right. Like it, the, 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 the player character boundary is very porous, uh, you know, in that kind of game. It's like, I only have four hit points and that thing is huge and scary and dark and we don't really know what it is yet. So let's stay in the house. Right. Right. Even. Should we open the door? Never open no, the door. No, don't open the door. <laughs> Look, and, I will show you both of my hit points. Right. Okay. Now do yeah, not open that because door. Because <laughs> I don't, you know, we don't have a lot or any authorial power over what happens once right. we go out that door. And that game is perfectly happy to say, oh, you made a bad choice, you're dead. Or or you just made a uh, uh, made bad choice is the wrong term, but you you made a choice. Right. And, and, the, and the consequence of it is, is you're dead. Right? <laughs> and that's, again, we're, uh, part of that framing, I mean, like you say, and, and, and as the questions here address, uh, that makes me think, of course, also of Torchbearer, mm-hmm. in which Torchbearer walks, and this is the magic of that, not just as a game, but as a product to me, is similar to Fiasco in that, and why Torchbearer adapted to Colonial Marines mm-hmm. as quickly and as well as it does is that it simultaneously loves and fears character death. In that, right. the, in that it is absolutely a yeah. game in which character... But it's not paranoia, mm. right? And it's not... Um, even though you could just essentially... Let's go back to town and get an identical character. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but is that you know and kind of relish the fact that your character is probably doomed, mm. but maybe I'm the one who's not doomed. <laughs> but I am because we're all doomed or whatever, right? But you don't know for sure, but you think so. But you're not like... You're not setting out to get your character killed necessarily. Right. But you, the player, are perfectly comfortable with the fact that that's on the table because you know the material. You're doomed, but there's no way you're staying home. Right. It's like you're doomed, but maybe not. Maybe you're doomed or you're going to be rich. And that's where the tension comes (laughs) from. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't played it myself. I've actually seen, like, been there while some people are playing. Right. Right. There's real tension. Yeah. There's real tension in the decision making. There's a lot of, all right, this might, like, we have a bunch of bad options. What's, the least bad one. I'll light a torch. How yeah. many torches do we have left? Right. And in it part, does, yes. And as it does said. it in part by not answering. Like what I love is because some, sometimes you, the, the notion is to have a game that answers every one of these questions elegantly or to have a game that answers each of these questions in as few as answers as possible. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And Torchbearer, because of its history, what it's emulating and what it's growing out of mm-hmm. has a different answer for each one of these questions. In some cases, they're very traditional answers. They're not necessarily new answers. There's, yeah. a, there's a, a GM and everything in a very traditional sense. Mm-hmm. But how, like how it states its answer, is also not necessarily uh, determinate, but is highly important to its identity. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, a game is not just the way it answers these questions, but I think you're absolutely right that it starts there because mm-hmm. you can't actually determine the identity of your game. Although you, I watch people do it all the time until you start answering certain questions about who gets to make which decisions. Like if you have a, if you try to do a, a, a game that was a, a Coen Brothers role playing game and there was and, there, and all the authorial that, but that was more like the clay that woke. Mm-hmm. That would still handle, and, and its, its actual formal identity would be very different from Fiasco's. Yes. In terms of, Fiasco's a natural notion of the way that its characters interact that leads to a rambunctious unpredictability because all of the characters have powerful ambition and poor impulse control. Right. If Fiasco had a, a single overriding authorial voice GM, and that GM was not, say, Jason Morningstar or Paul Tevis or Ken Hyde or whoever, you know, somebody adept running that game, I'd pick on them because I played with all those folks and seen them play terrifically, but is that... With a different GM, you might end up with a very specific Coen Brothers movie over and over and over again. I'm not thinking of one particular, but I mean, like, you might end up rather right. than getting any one of these various Coen Brothers movies, mm-hmm. you might get No Country for Old Men over and over again, which still would be great, mm-hmm. but it's a different thing. It's identity changes. Mm-hmm. 
So I think as as you can hear, as we kind of talk through these and how they all overlap and stuff, there there may be some fertile ground to drill down into one or more of these questions as their own episode, because they're not just about GMing. Right. These are a way, and again, I, I say this, I think you can hear this in, in our conversation, that like these are derived from things that I think about. And then you say, how does having a GM address this question? But these questions aren't about the GM role in the game. They're just questions about your game. And right. they can be answered a lot. I mean, these all could be answered with, it's D&D, there's a GM, and there's a party of players. And that fulfills all of these things, right? assuming the rest of the game is right. doing certain things to the, make them happen. Right. When When is the answer to these questions, when or if, is the answer to these questions being bequeathed to one of the players at the table at the moment of play, right. as opposed to answered by the design before play begins, right. or the system by which these questions are answered, or yeah, so on and so forth. Yeah, is it the GM? Is it the player? Is it the, the mechanical interaction? Is it the reward cycle? Is yeah. it the module design? Those all poke up into the shifting shifting bubbles of these questions. So if we if it sounds like we haven't really gotten down into as gritty a conversation as we might have tried to, it's because <laughs> we are now finding whole new realms to dive into with these questions maybe as a as a guide for some future episodes. It's also I think and this is a one of the great examples proof of the intensity and value of these kinds of questions. There's almost, it's extremely difficult to answer these kind of questions without either pointing at a game that answers them in a certain way mm-hmm. or designing. Right. right? Like, answering them is now I'm, uh, I've, I've just started a new game. <laughs> right. Yeah. These aren't, yeah. Again, it's, it's hard to answer them in the abstract because you can only answer them with game design. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider supporting us at Patreon so that we can continue to bring these episodes to you. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash ndpaoletta. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash wordwill. You can find all of our older episodes as well as everything else Design Games Podcast related at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...